You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Um, This year we are walking through Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, but there are a couple of um, stops along the way where we are very intentionally going to pause and um, focus somewhere else and then come back. Um, I learned several years ago um, when we went through the book of Revelation 12 weeks in a row, um, it's maybe healthy to pause every once in a while, and Romans is almost as stout. And so over the next two months, um, we are going to walk through the letter of 1 John together, and uh, we're really excited about this. Uh, 1 John is in the back of the Bible. If you get to Revelation, you've gone just a little bit too far. But before we just leap into it, um, there's a couple things I want to share with you about it uh, that are uh, relevant for us to understand. Um, <clears throat> if you walk through the New Testament, specifically the epistles, the letters written to churches, um, and you look at any letter that like Paul wrote, um, it always begins with an opening where Paul's explaining not only who he's writing to and why he's writing, but that it's him writing the letter. Um, This is Paul, an apostle of Christ. This is Paul and Timothy, uh, your brothers in Christ. Well, what's interesting about the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Hebrews is that they don't come out and tell us who actually wrote the letter. Um, But John is a lot different than Hebrews in that we have a ton of... uh, reasons why, historical, grammatical, even contextual, of why there is great evidence John, the apostle of Jesus, wrote this letter. Um, We know that the letter was written somewhere probably between um, 80 and 90 AD, and when John wrote it, it's also very, very probable that all the rest of Jesus' original disciples were dead. John was the only one left. Now, that being said, Um, John was in Jerusalem, and we know that he was part of fleeing from Jerusalem in the persecution when Rome invaded, when they destroyed the temple. But when this letter was written, he had not yet been exiled to Patmos, which that's where he wrote Revelation. Why is all of this important? Why is it important to understand who wrote the letter? Well, let's look at the beginning of the letter Together, and then we'll come back and explore that question a little bit further. Um, look with me in First John, chapter one, verse one. He writes, "That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it." And proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete." No, so why is it important that we understand John wrote this letter? 
Well, because the author says his, his testimony is, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands, uh, the Son of God. So the writer of the letter is saying that he has seen, heard, and touched God in the flesh. He has been with Jesus. So this is his legitimacy in being able, as he put it, these are his words, to testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life. So once we've established who wrote this letter, we also need to understand why. Why was the letter written? What's the purpose of it? Well, part of the reason this letter was written was as a response to false doctrine beginning to creep up in the New Testament churches and people beginning to wander away from the church and the faith because of false teaching. And not all, but a, a large part of the false teaching that was being spread is something that we call Gnosticism. We've talked about Gnosticism before. Uh, we'll probably talk about it again because, again, it was very pervasive in a lot of the places where the New Testament churches were growing. Gnosticism, if you read anything about it, it comes across almost like a lot of New Age thought and religion today. But there's a difference where something like Scientology may say, oh, God is in everything, it's in the trees, God's in the grass, God's in you, you just need to figure out how to kind of tune in. Gnosticism, in contrast, says that matter is evil. And so your flesh is evil. The implications of this are that there's no way on earth God would ever consider inhabiting flesh. There's no way God would make the decision. He couldn't and he shouldn't uh, become one of us. That's what Gnosticism implies. God could not have become a man. Well, friends, if at, using John's language, if the word did not become flesh, if God did not become one of us, then we don't have access to the truth and grace that are provided to us by the glory of the only Son of God. And so if you at all are ever tempted to think theology doesn't matter, you are mistaken. It matters a great deal what we believe about God and why we believe it. So as I said, one of John's aims in this letter is to combat false teaching and Gnosticism, but that's not the only reason John's writing. He's writing to the people of God, and he's got some particular aims and goals in writing this letter. Um, John wants to refine our theology. John wants you to refine your theology. John believes that you need to continue growing in your knowledge and your understanding of who God is and what he's done on your behalf. We should be refining our theology. We should also be sharpening our ethics. Uh, John believes that when you meet Jesus, that what's going to happen is as a result of knowing Jesus, pursuing Jesus, that that's going to dictate the decisions that you make, how you treat other people, the priorities in how you live and think and act. So 
it refines our theology. John wants us to sharpen our ethics, but he's also writing because he believes that anyone who's a follower of Christ should be building up their devotion to the word of life. That we should be um, continually growing in our pursuit to know Jesus, who John, you're going to see throughout the letter, says is the source of light and life and love. We have none of those things without Christ. So in walking with the Lord, we will be growing in faith, obedience, and love toward God and toward one another. Go back with me to the first verse. John begins this letter uh, by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes. But to begin with that which was from the beginning, what beginning are we talking about? Is John saying from the beginning of when I figured all this out? Um, He's talking about Jesus. Is he talking about when Jesus entered the picture? No, actually, John tells us what he's talking about and when he's talking about when he writes his gospel. He's talking about the very beginning. If you'll turn with me to the gospel of John, um, we're going to be going back and forth between the gospel and the letter um, throughout this morning. But remember also, the way that this letter is written, the words that you've heard even just this far in these four verses, he begins this letter, that which was from the beginning. I told you there are even grammatical evidences that John wrote this letter, and we see some of them here in his gospel. Look in the gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is declaring this is who Jesus is. He has always been. He was with the Father. Verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. So he, he proclaims here the word, the life, the son, God in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. That's what he declares in his gospel. Well, now he comes along in his letter and he says, the son, the life, God in the flesh. We have seen him. We have heard him. We have touched him. Now go back to verse 2. 1 John, verse 2, he says it this way. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The word of life was made manifest to us in Christ. What does this mean? Um, What is the result or the outcome that the word of life was made manifest to us. John says it here in verse 2. He says it's eternal life. That's what it means. Jesus walked, lived, ministered, healed, preached, died, and rose again among us. 
We saw him. We walked with him. We touched him. We witnessed all of them. In fact, John was standing there and watched Jesus die. He saw his dead body, but he saw him, touched him, listened to him after he resurrected. But you notice that John uses this weird word that most of us anyways don't walk around slinging out day to day, manifest. We were talking in my office this week about how every once in a while, it's probably just a safe thing for us as humans to look up words in the dictionary. Some of us like tossing things around and maybe we don't really even know what it is that we're saying. So I just decided I'm going to see what Webster says manifest means. And now you can't just take it loosey-goosey because a lot of times there's like 14 definitions in the dictionary. So you have to look at it up next to the Greek. But here's the definition of manifest. To make clear and obvious to the eye or the mind. That's what it means. The definition B, if you will, is to display or demonstrate. Okay, so now keep this in mind. To make clear obvious to the eye or the mind, to display or demonstrate. So now we go back into John, and we understand that what John is saying is that the word, the life, the salvation of God was made clear and obvious to us. It was made brutally clear to the naked eye. It was made obvious to even the simple mind. This is the Son of God. And now, definition B, through this, God has displayed and demonstrated His love for us in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means that the Word of Life was made manifest. But understanding that we have like this real itch for application, let's ask the question, what does this mean for us? Well, great news, it means the same thing for us that it meant for John, that it meant for James, that it meant for a first century Christian. It means all the same. Go back with me to the Gospel of John. And we're going to spend just a moment walking through the gospel of John, just getting a glimpse of some of what this means for us as Christ followers. If you go back to the first chapter in the gospel of John, he says in verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does it mean for us? What does it mean to us? that the word of life was made manifest, it means that you and I who were dead in our sin, who were separated from God, can be reconciled back to him and now be called sons and daughters of God. Turn to John chapter 7. Verse 37. 
It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, and I want you to notice this. It says, and he cried out. If Matthew or Mark or John say that Jesus said, or that Jesus proclaimed, or that Jesus declared, we should obviously pay attention. But for John to say that Jesus cried out, this means that Jesus did everything in his physical power to make sure that anyone within earshot heard what he had to say. This means that Jesus found this to be of grave importance. Jesus stands up and cries out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So what does this mean for us? It means that not only does Christ pour into us, he pours into us in such a way that he is poured out of us. That's how powerful Christ is. John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Um, Oprah likes to tell us that we just need to find our truth. No such animal. Thankfully, we have the truth, and it is what will set us free. So Jesus comes along and says, here's what I've come to do for you. I've come to bring you out of your slavery that you might walk in newness of life. Um, John chapter 10. Probably we could just read the whole chapter, but let's just look at verse 10. Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, that you might have life to the fullest. If you move to John chapter 11, you might be familiar with this story. Jesus and the disciples left town and they got word that Lazarus was dying. And Jesus said, well, we're going to stay here for a couple more days. And Lazarus died. And when Jesus finally made it back to Bethany, Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, were waiting on Jesus. Martha came broken and sad. Excuse me, Mary came broken and sad. Martha followed behind just plain flat angry. Angry with Jesus. It's fairly audacious, don't you think? And she basically tells Jesus, if you had gotten back here, Lazarus would not have died. If you had just come back when we called you, Jesus, then Lazarus wouldn't have died. And and see, we have the luxury that we know the end of the story, that Jesus goes to Lazarus' grave and weeps with everyone because he sees their brokenness and then says, Lazarus, come out. And after four stinking days in the grave, Lazarus walks out. But before we understand this, look at what Jesus says to her in John 11, 25. He says to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So what does it mean for us that the word of life has been made manifest? It means that you and I can go from death to life. And it means that even though these physical bodies that we have are wearing out, and they're wearing out, are they not? Even though they are wearing out and they are like hanging by a thread sometimes, spiritually, we will never taste death in Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. John chapter 14 Jesus is under the pressure right now that he knows in a day or so, I'm about to die. And he's sharing these things with his disciples. You've got Thomas throwing out doubts, Philip throwing out questions. Jesus says to them in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. In fact... Greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And see, that's the point where the disciples would have most certainly, if they were even listening and paying attention, gone, how does that even make any sense, Jesus? You're the Son of God. How is you leaving going to not only empower us to do the works that you've done, but greater works than what we've witnessed you do? How does this make any sense at all? It makes perfect sense because Jesus says, you need me to go back to the Father so that I can send my spirit. Because he's not just going to dwell among you. He's not just going to dwell around you. He's going to come and live within you. He's going to come and he's going to fill you. He's going to comfort you. He's going to testify and affirm to you that you belong to the Father. Greater works than these. Jesus goes on. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what does this mean for us, friends? The word of life was made manifest. That the word, the Son, the life has come. It means that you and I can go from death to life. It means that rivers of living water can not only be poured into us, but poured out of us. It means that we no longer walk in darkness, but that we might walk in light. It means that we now have fellowship with one another because of the blood of Jesus Christ. What does this mean for us? We don't even have time to go through all of it. But what this means for us now needs to lead us to the next question. Okay, that's all good stuff. What's this going to require from us? What, what's this going to require from me? Well, back in 1 John, verse 3. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And why on earth would you care anything about having fellowship with us? Well, it's because our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, you do realize that you believed the gospel because you received the gospel, right? 
You only believed it because you, you received it. And see, you only received the gospel because someone was obedient to come and proclaim it to you. Uh, whether it was your mom and your dad, whether it was a Sunday school teacher, whether it was a neighbor, a coworker, a preacher, somebody declared to you, you are lost, you are dead in your sin, but Christ has come that you might have life. He's atoned for your sin on the cross. He has brought you victory over sin and death through his resurrection. Do you believe this? And you said, yes, and you are saved. You believed it because you received it, and you received it because someone was obedient to bring it and proclaim it to you. Friends, if we have received it, then we are now responsible to testify to it and proclaim it. John's words. To testify to it and proclaim it. Eternal life. Go back in and look at what he said. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. First of all, out of obedience. Because Christ said, go, be my witnesses, go, make disciples, go and testify to what you have seen and you've heard. We proclaim it out of obedience, but we also proclaim it because the proclamation is fruit and evidence in our lives that we belong to him. Back to the gospel of John. I told you we were going back and forth. Back in the gospel of John, in chapter 15, Jesus is saying to the disciples, you have to stay connected to me. And because you do, this is the evidence that you're going to see. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Friends, part of the fruit that we bear is the testimony and the proclamation of who Christ is and what he has done in our lives. Jesus goes on in in verse 16 and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So what does this require of us that the word of life has been made manifest? It requires of us that we proclaim it, that we declare it. And why is this so important to John? Why is he emphatic about this? What's the purpose in driving this home? Well, again, thank you, John. He tells us. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And the reason that you not only want, you're going to need fellowship with us is because we have fellowship with God the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We want you to have what we have. And see, here's the thing, friends. I think a lot of us, we we believe that 
in a, yeah, I get it, and yeah, I hear it, and yeah, maybe even a minute. But our lives are not necessarily reflecting that. I want to read something to you. Um, If you're a parent of one of our students, um, I highly encourage you to read anything and everything that Chip is sending out to us um, to equip us as parents. Um, But I want to read to you something here. Uh, Our friends at the Barna Group define millennial practicing Christians as those born between 1984 and in 1998. All right, let's have some fun. Are you in that group? Let's see. Who are our millennials? Raise them up. Come on, own it. Really? There's only that many millennials in this room? Thank you. Okay. Down here, some of you are just lying. (laughs) So listen, um, Millennial practicing Christians, they define them as those born between 1984 and 1998 who identify as Christian and who agree strongly that faith is very important in their lives and who have attended church within the past month. And let me stop and say this. This article is not to pick on millennials. I know we do that all the time. No, um, this, is, this is a point in case uh, that's reflecting uh, what our greater culture looks like right now, okay? Uh, The Barna Group has completed research gauging how different generations view evangelizing um, or sharing one's faith. For millennial Christians, 73% say they know how to respond when someone raises questions about the Christian faith. That's higher than any other generational group. But almost half of practicing millennial Christians agree, at least somewhat, that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day adopt the same faith. This trend should cause us all to question how well we are nurturing our children in the faith. If you believe in a Jesus that does not compel you that a lost world, whether they claim to be Muslim, whether they claim to be Buddhist, whether they claim to be, I'm just not really caring. If the Jesus that has saved you is not somehow compelling you to a heart of brokenness, that they need to hear the gospel... I am afraid for you that you are at the wrong Jesus... Because Christ has come that we might have life. And if we now have that life, how can we live in complacency that there are those who don't? John says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And again, what's the big deal? Well, because our fellowship is with God the Father and with his son Jesus Christ and therefore with one another, our fellowship is is unique and distinct. It, yes, like a group of us guys, we can go out and shoot guns and none of us have to like give a five-minute Bible study. It doesn't have to happen. Ladies, you can get together and craft or cook or whatever and you don't have to stop in the middle of it 
and somebody give a devotion, okay? We can live life, but understand that the fellowship that we have with one another is unique and it is distinct. And let's talk for just a minute about why. First of all, it is grounded in the testimony and the power of the word of God. There are a lot of us in this room who probably have a lot of different things in common. Um, There's a lot of us in this room who have a lot of things not in common. But the bottom line is the reason that you can gather a group, a room full of diverse people who have all gathered for the same reason is because we believe that this word is the foundation for life. That it's, it's what's going to be the standard of how I make my decisions, of how I'm a husband, of how I'm a father, of what I do at work and how I do it, of how I live and treat my neighbors. This is the word that guides me that I stand on. And so part of the fellowship that we have with one another, it is rooted and grounded and founded in the word of God and what it means to us. It's also mutual in that it it hinges on the unity that we have in the spirit. Friends, if we decided to to give out a big long hairy systematic theology survey today, I guarantee you there are going to be some beliefs that we have in this room that we don't see eye to eye on everything. But I will also say that To really want to be a part of this fellowship, to dig deeply in it, we're going to agree that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross to atone for our sins and rose from the dead that you and I might have life. And so there are times when we have to have unity, knowing that not everything that we're seeing eye to eye on it, but that the essentials... Man, we're right here together. And I'll also say to you that the Word of God teaches us that our fellowship is constantly being renewed through the communion that we have with one another. And so, you know, like my missional community, we'll gather tonight. And even if all we do is gather around my dining room table and eat pigs in a blanket and fellowship, and laugh. Um, The fellowship that we have is rooted and grounded in something that we know that at any time, if I have a burden and I need somebody to bear it with me, um, it can be laid on the table. We know that at the end of the day that we can pray with one another, for one another, over one another. And yes, we do that. But not every time that we gather. But you know, even if this afternoon, some of us go out to a restaurant and just gather, there ought to be something unique and distinct about our fellowship. Why? Because there ought to be something unique and distinct about us. We're the ones that even leave good tips to crappy waiters. Because we just want to bless somebody. There ought to be something that sticks out and stands out about us. Verse 4, and I'm done. John wraps up this 
intro, if you will, and says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And for me, this is the first curveball. Because if you've just said, um, we're sharing all of this and proclaiming all of this to you so that you can have fellowship with us, because it's that good, and the reason it's that good is because our fellowship is with, this, with God and with his son, I fully expect John to wrap this little intro up by now saying, and we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. But that's not what he says. He says, I'm writing all this to you. And in fact, I am acting on these things I am writing to you. And we, as Christ followers, we're following through with these things so that our joy may be complete. John is telling us here that our joy in Christ is complete through obedience to proclaim the gospel. You and I find joy in Christ when we're obedient. And part of our obedience to him is to proclaim what he has done in us, for us, and through us. Back in the gospel of John, in John 15, verse 11, Jesus says, I've, I've said these things to you. I've told you these things. I've shared these things with you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You realize that God's desire for you and for me is joy. Well, friends, if our life is void of the fellowship that we have with one another, then our joy is not complete. Because if our life is void of fellowship with the body of Christ, understand the implication, our life is void of fellowship with Christ. See, you can't tell me, hey, Brian, can we be friends? Oh, and by the way, I don't like your wife. Sorry, we're done. We just don't get to go there. Well, we can't tell Jesus, Jesus, you are awesome. Now, your people, eh, I'm kind of iffy on that one. I hang out with them once a week for about an hour, but that's it. It doesn't make sense. Jesus says to us, if you want fellowship with me, he says in John 13, 34, and 35, here's going to be the evidence that you belong to me that you love one another, that you have fellowship with one another, that the world looks at you and says, man, what is different, not only about their individual lives, but their relationships with one another? It's Jesus. And so if our life is void of that fellowship with the body of Christ, understand you are not experiencing what Jesus said he wants for you in John 10, 10, life to the fullest. There's part of what God desires for you that right now you're missing. You don't have to miss it. See, the good news is is that all of this is available to us today. Fellowship with God and with one another through Jesus Christ. The word of life has come so that we might have life to the fullest. The Son of God has come that we might live and walk in victory 
over sin and death. The Spirit has come that we might be transformed by the Word and that we might have fellowship with one another. That that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we ask you in this moment, um, through the power of your Spirit, to speak to our hearts. Lord, we ask you to give us hearts uh, like King David. He exhorts us, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Father, will you stir our hearts in such a way today that we will be physically moved. To declare who you are and what you've done. Lord, you may call some of us You may call us uh, to get up on a a desk and proclaim who you are, but um, Father, for some of us, maybe you're just calling us to walk across the office to a coworker. Father, will you give us eyes to see people the way that you see them? Lord Jesus, we, we are here today because you are our victory. You have conquered sin and you have defeated death. And because of this, we now have life. So Lord, we pray that you would be 
exalted and lifted up and glorified in this place through our lives. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.